In this week's episode of Disrupting Innovation, I'm going to be speaking with Hannah Davis and Lisa McCorkle from the Patient-Led Research Collaborative. And I'm so excited for people to listen to this one because this is another area of health technology innovation that really makes stuff happen, uh, patient-led work. So these individuals who are incredible um, were not in the healthcare space before the COVID-19 pandemic. And since unfortunately going on to develop long COVID as a result of their COVID infections, these two individuals have been at the forefront of advocacy for long COVID and driving a lot of the discovery and research that needs to occur to help the 6% of the US population and tens of millions of folks around the world who are living with long COVID every single day. This is Disrupting Innovation with Dr. David Petrino. Hannah, Lisa, welcome to the Disrupting Innovation podcast. Um, it's such a pleasure to have you. This is a podcast where we talk about why health innovation and change in healthcare takes so long. Um, and so the whole point is that I want to reach out to people who touch healthcare in different ways and who have done things that didn't take long and get a sense of how they did what they did. Um, so we usually just start off by, um, it would be great if you could just tell us a little bit about yourselves, how you two came to meet and how you formed, um, you know, the, the connection that you formed and, and the organization that you now both are working for. I'm Hannah Davis. I'm um, the co-founder of the Patient-Led Research Collaborative, which is our organization. Um, before I got sick, I was working in machine learning um, and artificial intelligence. I was doing a lot of generative art and music um, and also tools for identifying bias in machine learning data sets. And then I got sick in March 2020. Um, I'll pass it to Lisa. And I'm Lisa McCorkle, another one of the co-founders of Patient-Led Research Collaborative. Um, got sick in March of 2020 as well with COVID and developed long COVID. Um, and yeah, we can explain a little bit more what our group does. Um, but my background is in public policy. When I got sick, I was finishing my graduate degree in public policy. Um, briefly worked for the government working on um, SNAP policy, which is food stamps and um, prior to that, I'd been working on um, some employment law policy and um, um, a variety of, of other types of policy areas. So that's really, really my background. Um, and yeah, how we came together. So we both got sick March 2020, and um, we basically joined the Body Politic COVID-19 support group um, right when it was announced that Fiona Lowenstein created it and um, they published an op-ed in the New York Times describing that, um, you know, COVID recoveries are not as simple as they're kind of being made out to be um, for many people. And so we both joined the support group um, as did several others of our co-founding team and it was very clear right from the beginning that people in the support group were just sharing so many of their experiences, their symptoms that like were not being covered in the media. They were not being talked about by government. 
Um, and there was such a wealth of information being shared and seemingly no one else was trying to do anything with it. Uh, many of our doctors were already gaslighting us or just saying like, wait, you know, you'll recover. But meanwhile, we're having these like wild symptoms that, you know, people like we haven't seen before and um, experienced. And so um, a survey was put out that some of us worked on. Our, our co-founder Gina was really the, the head of that, um, putting the survey together. And that really looked at you know, kind of what the symptoms people had been talking about um, and a little bit about the experience so far. And this was just, you know, a couple months into really people um, experiencing these symptoms. Um, a few of us who were part of the data nerds channel who like love data, have some background in data, um, offered to help with the analysis and write up of that. And that was posted in May of 2020, just as a Google doc um, and is now really the first research on long COVID. Um, it identified neurological symptoms that previously had not been talked about. Um, it looked at over 62 symptoms. You know, previously COVID was really thought of as just a respiratory illness. And it was very clear from, um, from our study and our own experience that that was not the case. Um, yeah, so from there, we just there was kind of a main group of us who felt very passionate, I think, about this and wanted to keep the work going. Um, it was clear, you know, we weren't recovering and um, felt like more was needed to be done. So we put out a second survey in the fall of 2020 that resulted in um, a paper that was published in the Lancet C Clinical Medicine. And that was, um, that documented over 200 symptoms of long COVID. And we really expanded on based on what we were hearing from the community and looking at long COVID over seven months. Um, and yeah, so I mean, my interactions with Hannah, like at the beginning were just like, I, I don't know, it was very bizarre because it was just like over Slack and um, like doing analysis and, um, but all of us like clicked very well and had very similar values. Um, and it just, I don't know how it worked so well. Like we're across the country, across the world in many cases. Um, and has just been this like really beautiful partnership that has come out of this. And now we've built an organization um, with our other teammates on this. And um, yeah, now I have like really amazing friends and they've been my like major support through through the last three years. Incredible. Um, Hannah, anything you want to add to that story? Um, um, I mean, I just agree that it's magical. And I think, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about like how to replicate this model and there's components of it that I think are, are hard, including just how, how well we get along. Um, but I think it, you know, we really trust and respect each other. I think from going through something so difficult um, but also I think that the fact, at least for me, the fact that kind of I lost all this brain capacity at the same time I was like starting this collaboration, like made what it, it was part of it. Like I, I just really felt like I needed to rely on other people and rely on other people's decisions and judgment and, um, yeah, decision-making. Gotcha. Um, and I think we can dig into some of those things a little 
um, uh, you know, a little bit later on, but um, I want to have a, a bit of a, a fanboy moment and just say that um, what you've been doing um, has been disruptive. You know, the, the paper that you spoke about in, in Lancet um, is something that I routinely put on my presentations because to date it's still one of the most comprehensive things out there in terms of describing what people with long COVID go through in terms of diversity of symptoms and how serious those symptoms can be. And um, what what is striking to me is that, you know, you both explained your background. You, you know, maybe, Lisa, you're, you're kind of healthcare adjacent in some of the policy work that you're doing, but you're not healthcare workers. Um, you're not healthcare researchers. Um, you're sick. <laughs> Uh, you know, and yet you're producing work that is some of the best in the world. Um, you're getting seats at tables that typically people in healthcare who call themselves healthcare researchers need to wait, you know, to have a prestigious career of 30 or 40 years to sit down with the CDC or the NIH or the, or the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine. Um, so... Uh, people are obviously responding to the work that you're doing. My, my first question is, you know, so you've accelerated a process, right? Um, what, what do you think it is about this group that is making such a difference so quickly? I mean, I think because we are all not motivated by our careers, um, and kind of the, the things that go along with that, like ego, et cetera. And we were motivated by getting better and understanding what was happening to our bodies. It's just a completely different kind of frame through which to work. Um, so it was faster, obviously, because we knew it was happening um, way ahead of anything in the public. And that's been kind of a consistent theme that we see things happening. We're, like support groups are always kind of the canary in the coal mine um, you know, we knew reinfections caused long COVID. We knew breakthrough infections caused long COVID. Um, we knew the neurological and cardiovascular symptoms were among the highest, most common symptoms really early on. I think that definitely was a big part of it. Um, but then I think also like after we put out our first paper, it was like, it was gray literature, right? It was a Google doc. It wasn't a formal paper. And some of the feedback we got was like, oh, I'd love to use this in this presentation at the CDC or NIH or whatever, but like it needs to be formal and citable. So I think kind of operating through a lens where we'd get the data out there the most um, in the way that was taken seriously was, was part of our motivation and success too. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, um, I mean, our team is, fairly large and has just like such a wide variety of backgrounds. And so we have a lot of people who have been in academia, um, just like not necessarily in biomedical research, but we do have, we do have a lot of folks in that as well. Um, but just like a lot of different backgrounds that we have. And so we had people who had the experience publishing and, um, you know, knew how to go through that process. Cause I, I mean, the first time I had to do an IRB, I was like, well, like it took me a very long time. And so if we had to do that, like if I had to do that on my own at the beginning of this, I, I don't think it would have gotten done, but we had people who had done that process before it was, you know, they had teams that could help with that. 
Um, so I think the the background of the team was helpful in facilitating that um, while like the rest of us kind of learned the space. Um, and, and then I'd also say, you know, I think the, so we had that background, but we also had a lot of other um, backgrounds that came into play. So like my background in policy, um, Gina and Hannah Way's background in um, participatory research, like all of that was really helpful in creating what we did, which was um, really high quality work that then was able to translate to policy. So that was one of like my priorities was that, and, and really a priority of patient-led research collaborative is like, we're not just gonna have this data sit there, we're gonna do something with it. We're going to make sure it's understandable to policymakers. We're going to share it with policymakers. Like this is, this is our lives at stake. So we're not just creating data to create data. Like we're gonna do something with it, which I think is also a flip on what a lot of academia does is that, you know, a lot of people just like get the paper out there, but they publish, it's, you know, a huge thing, congratulations, it's awesome. It's a lot of work to do that, but then don't take that extra step to really create action. And so I think that was another step that we were very intentional about doing. Yeah. Um, I, I think that that, I, I hope that, um, you know, that the, some of the people listening to this will be academics, uh, this particular episode. And I hope that academics start to hear some of what you're saying, some of the themes that are already coming through, um, you know, the, the, the theme of team science, as opposed to you've got some principal investigator that's looking to push their career forward. They've got a whole bunch of people working under them who know that they need to work hard and produce whatever the PI is telling them to work hard and produce so that maybe they get a shot at their own career um, versus a group of people coming together with a shared goal, trying to solve a problem, throwing ego out the window and saying it's too important not to solve this problem, so off we go. Um, I think that that is crucial. I also, you know, I love what you shared about, you know, taking action after a paper. Um, that was one of uh, the things that I learned uh, pretty early on when I moved from, you know, I moved from clinical work to basic science research, and then I moved back into clinical research. And, you know, basic science research, you, you publish a paper saying, you know, a neuron does this or, you know, uh, and, and you know, it, it's interesting to you, but like most of the world doesn't really care about it. Um, when you move into clinical research, you publish a paper saying, hey, I did this new stroke intervention and there'll be a press release about it. And then what a lot of people don't really tell you is you then get 200 emails of desperate stroke survivors saying, I read about this, can I access this treatment? And in almost every researcher's career experience, you say, oh, actually it was just an experiment, the experiment's over, no. And from my first year doing clinical research, that drove me completely bananas. I was like, my God, like, are we really just going to tell these people go away? Um, as opposed to, okay, well, yeah, you actually can access this and let's make this available or accessible or, you know, uh, let's talk about what the next steps will be. Um, now, I feel as though with, with PLRC, um, 
you know, you're, I mean, again, some of the work that you're publishing is, is the most influential out there in long COVID. How do you, how do you wrestle with the next steps? You know, um, how, you know, sometimes a lot of what you publish, there isn't immediate next step action that, that you can take as a non-clinical organization. So what are you trying to do? How are you, you know, um, uh, how, how are you, you know, regulating that, I suppose. <laughs> I think a lot of what we did, um, especially right after the second paper was, or actually even the first paper came out was um, just present it, present it to people who were making guidelines. I mean, the CDC guidelines were some of the earliest stuff we worked on. Um, the, the WHO, early WHO long COVID group, um, we started working with AAPMNR, um, so, so many medical providers, medical universities, um, research universities reaching out to us just to get kind of an understanding of the space, which I think did impact clinical practice too. Um, yeah, Lisa, would you, what would you say? Yeah, I think we were, it, that's another kind of unique aspect to this is that I think because there was um, not a lot known about about long COVID and um, that, you know, physicians and, and researchers aren't taught about other infection onset chronic illnesses, like researchers who did want to get in the space or policymakers who were interested in it were like, we don't know what to do. And so reached out to us because we were the only ones like talking about it that they could see. Um, and so we did get a lot of opportunities that I, you know, I think were crucial in us continuing the conversation and making sure that we were heard to the extent that we could, you know, I, I'd say like, yeah, we like helped with the guidelines, but I feel like I need to give the disclaimer now that like, you know, as a patient representative or uh, like, there's only so much power you have, but um, I, yeah, I think we, we got really lucky in the opportunities that were presented to us. Um, but then also just continuing to talk about it. Like Hannah has a big following on Twitter and is really good with science communication and is able to like get a lot of information out there and just like keep pushing that narrative. Um, and we we really just tried to like jump at every opportunity we could and we continue to do that, which is um, exhausting for a group of, of sick people. But we kind of were like, well, like we're given this opportunity, we have to take it for ourselves and for the, like on behalf of the community, because otherwise like someone else could take that opportunity that's gonna share, you know, some really harmful advice. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then also like partnering with other existing organizations in the space who have worked in infection associated chronic illnesses who understand and, and kind of partnering with them to, um, you know, learn insights and um, to hopefully like help spread out. Cause really like this is the way that we've tried to approach it is from a disability justice lens, like centering sustainability, um, trying to center slowness, like really prioritizing our health above all, um, which is a really difficult like daily struggle for all of us, but is something that we felt like we need to do cause this isn't gonna be solved overnight. Um, and yeah, we just, you know, we're, we're going to do our best and that's all we can really do, but it seems to have 
you know, I think just like the way that it's worked out, even the fact that like with COVID, so many things went virtual and then we're also sick and can't necessarily like all travel. Um, that overlap worked in our favor um, because more rooms were open to us because it was now more virtual, right? Like if it was not, if like if this was like 10 years ago and all of us got sick and things didn't go virtual, I like we wouldn't have been able to be in the rooms that we've been able to get into. Yeah, that's that's such an important piece, I, I think. Um, uh, you know, I was actually just having a conversation this morning um, about uh, a, a group of folks with spinal cord injury that I work with, and um, I was asked, uh, how did, uh, you know, did the pandemic uh, make, you know, make their cohesion and their, their work more difficult because everyone was isolated and indoors. And I was like, actually the opposite. They were like, they they had this rare moment of empathy where everyone, you know, they were able to say to everyone, this is what out, you know, you know how you're complaining about not being able to get out of the house and not being able to get on a plane. And, you know, all of these things you're currently complaining about, this is our lives 24 <laughs> seven. So, you know, can you find it in yourself to, to understand, you know, what this means? Um, and, uh, it was, I think it was a, a, a moment of learning for some. I think, unfortunately, now everyone has kind of gone a little wild um, with, with uh, you know, people just declaring that things are over. And um, But I think we need to keep reminding people that of that shared experience we all had a little while ago um, because it it's important. Um, you know, it was, it was for a minute everyone was sort of centering this conversation of, loneliness and you know the effects of loneliness and the the effects of um uh, universal design and how you know uh, we can make better worlds so uh it'd be nice to get back to <laughs> to, to that conversation i don't want everyone you know sheltering in place <laughs> but um that conversation was important uh for sure um so you you said another thing that was really important and something i wanted to discuss with you both um you've limited energy, you get invited to a lot of rooms now. If it's anything like my experience, sometimes the rooms you get invited into, you you get told, thank you so much for being here. Wow, what a what an impressive, you know, perspective you've brought to us. We've learned so much. And then the policy gets put out and it's like the exact opposite of what you're advocating for and the exact opposite of, of some of the feedback that you provided. Um, are you, do you have any tips or experiences of like how to spot red flags of people who are not your allies? So, so how do you identify folks who um, might be looking to sort of pop your name on something and say, see, we, we spoke with the community, um, but not necessarily acting in good faith? Or can you not know until, you know, it comes out? I think a lot of the time you can't know, but there are some consistencies in the beginning. I found that like sometimes people when they're emailing they'll, and they'll be bad with boundaries or they'll be, they won't respect like the limits we've put out on spoons um, or, you know, we'll ask them to talk slow and they, they won't. Um, that kind of thing is like a pretty obvious red flag. Um, 
but that's more of like a one-off. I think it's almost more the opposite where like people have to show us over and over again over time that they are allies um, and just show that they, like for me, a big thing is that they they know anything about the history of, of viral onset illnesses um, or, you know, have been in that space or, or something like that. Just it's it's such a huge relief to like get on an introductory call and like we had one this week and um, just, you know, they know everything and like, you don't have to, you don't have to say anything new. Um, I think that's always a good sign, but um, definitely for some of these other, you know, I think we do a couple types of engagement. Um, we do, you know, kind of collaboration. So like N3C is one of our big ones where we've been working with them for a couple of years on like EHR data and long COVID. Um, uh, and then, you know, there's um, kind of the one-offs where you just give feedback on like a survey design or something, and then you're really just working in a Google Doc, and then uh, they may or may not accept those changes. But I think where it's tricky is where you are working with a group that has so much power and is terrible at patient engagement. Like those are the hardest um, situations to be in because you feel obligated to be there, but the cost is so high. It's just so, so high. It's psychologically so high. It's energy-wise so high. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, some some red flags are, you know, talking over patients, making them explain something five times, um, and particularly not having any background to the stuff. So where, where patients need to come in and, and teach you the whole field of viral onset illness, um, you know, I had a, a call, a introductory call where someone yelled at me for using PEM. They said, stop using PEM. I don't know what PEM is. Um, and it's like, okay, well then like learn it. Like, let me tell it to you and like, let's continue to use it in this conversation. Um, I don't know. It, yeah. Sorry. I'm just ranting. No, <laughs> it's so, so valuable to hear these things. It's, it's almost like, uh, I mean, it, it's almost like when you're building a task force for these sorts of things, especially at a government level, there should be a test, right? It's like you you aren't even allowed in this room with a patient unless you know these things. Oh just my God, like really? you, you know, just like you would with a physician or or any any clinician. It's like no, you don't get to just like walk in, haven't read the textbook, and you know you're going to start prescribing medicines and treating people. I, I say that with full knowledge that that's currently what's happening to most people with long COVID, unfortunately. But um, when it comes to policy making, you know, the idea that someone doesn't know what post-exertional malaise is and is mad that you're using a term that they don't understand, that level of like that beautiful combination of <laughs> fragility and ignorance is um, that shouldn't be allowed when when it comes to um engaging in in policy like uh Truly. How, yeah you know how how can you how can you make policy if you have that such a low barrier of uh, such a low level of um basic information about the topic um i'm a bit speechless at that actually <laughs> <laughs> well i think that was even a researcher that yeah that was a researcher for a cognitive dysfunction project so <laughs> it gets worse it gets worse, worse. honestly <laughs> i love um, how you <laughs> <laughs> 
But I will, so one of the things I think is interesting, so in addition to doing like the research and the patient engagement ourselves and, um, you know, trying to push forward the field of long COVID and associated conditions research from a patient perspective, um, we've also tried to just like push the field of patient-led research forward. And um, part of that is that we created scorecards that um, help evaluate meaningful engagement of patients in research. And I think these are, these could be like a little bit of, not necessarily the checklist of like what, um, like topic area expertise in long COVID, but should be a checklist for like, are you engaging patients in a meaningful way and not in a tokenizing way? And so those are some of the things that we do look for in a partnership with researchers is like, are they meeting this criteria? How are they treating us? Are they compensating us? Are they, um, do we have agreements for um, disagreements? Like if there is a disagreement, how is that resolved? Um, and so I think those are really valuable. And I'd say, you know, I think they're even translatable to policy and being in the room with policymakers. Um, I will say, so I think policy generally is, I think, a little bit further along in the field of community engagement than traditional uh, medicine and like biomedical research. Um, at least the way that like I was taught policy and that that's kind of seen as like the best model, right? Is like community engaged. You are constantly interacting with the community. You have town halls. Um, you partner with community to develop policy. Like it, that's a much more common um, practice than what I've seen in research. And despite there being a large history of patient engagement in research, patients leading research, um, and I, I think like the disconnect maybe is that uh, like people within um, biomedical research aren't necessarily taught the value, the immense value that patient-led and patient-engaged research really has um, and how to do it, right? There, it, that's just like not really taught versus in policy that it's more taught if you're, if you like um, study that or are involved in that. So um, I do think that was an interesting disconnect and kind of like one of the lenses that I brought was like, oh, this just like makes sense. Like it makes sense for the community who is most impacted to have a say and to be leading the research and to be suggesting solutions. Like we are the ones impacted, so we have the solutions. Um, but that's just like not as common of a practice in, in research um, for biomedical um, research. Yeah. I mean, um, unfortunately um, I, I would, I would go a little bit further and say it's not even always just viewed as relevant. Um, and that's a really damning thing to say, but ultimately as a, you know, the way that we're trained as researchers, um, especially in the United States, but, but also, you know, same way in Australia is you find your question that you're going to spend your career answering. Right. And, and so then you sort of, make all of you know you run all of these experiments across your career to you know further this like narrative that you're trying to make about the condition that you're exploring so on and so forth 
And you're, you're kind of told almost when you're writing grants as an afterthought, you know, oh, well, just in this last sentence, throw in how it's going to be highly relevant to the stroke community or spinal cord injury or whatever. Like, but don't worry about that. Just just say it's going to be impactful, you know. Um, but but the idea is you, you know, like it, it's it's your little magic source that you're trying to develop and you're trying to get more money to keep developing the idea. And um, one of the most, uh, you know, frightening things that I <laughs> heard uh, as an early researcher that was uh, being trained on how to write NIH grants was, you know, there was this guy up the front taking the, the class and he was the, like, he had won the most NIH money in his, you know, in his field, like 10 years running. And then he quit and just went around the country teaching people to write grants because there was more money in that. And um, his opening line, which made me almost quit science, was never tell anyone in a grant that you're going to solve a problem because you're being peer reviewed by people who have a vested interest in you not solving the problem. If you solve the problem, they don't have anything to study. So no matter how good your data is, no matter how good your idea is, never promise to solve a problem. Just say that the knowledge that, that comes from this grant will kick the can down the road. And, you know, and so from a very formative stage, researchers are being told not to center a patient's voice, only to create intellectual property that, you know, can prolong their career, but also to, you know, uh, not, sh not swing big, you know, follow incremental discovery. And I mean, I, I would, uh, I, I can personally say like through my lens, because I was like, fuck that. I'm not, I'm not doing that. You know, I'm just going to say that, you know, I'm just going to get patients in a room and say, well, what do you need? And we're going to go off and do that. And interestingly, when I first pitched that idea of a lab of just action oriented, um, community co-designed research, um, the initial feedback that came back was like, oh, so you don't have a core competency. You're just like doing science that other people tell you to do. Like that was like the, the direct feedback that came from career scientists. And I was like, that's a really radical interpretation of what I'm trying to do <laughs> is to say you don't have a core competency. I would, that's not the first thing I would say about what I'm proposing here, but okay. So um, weird. It, but it, it's so weird, but we've created this scarcity environment for researchers where you tell you tell them it's only acceptable to have one idea. You can't get, you know, often people get criticized in their grants for, no, you're the expert in this thing. You shouldn't be doing this thing, which I also think is a reason why we're getting so many graded exercise therapy grants being presented because it's like, these people have been writing graded exercise therapy grants for years. They they don't want to hear about PEM. They don't want to they don't want to hear about it because that doesn't fit their narrative. They know how to write a graded exercise therapy grant or a CBT grant. Um, they they don't you know they've been trained that if they throw something radical out there like, hey, let's study mitochondrial dysfunction and oxidative stress and try and understand what's happening to someone when they crash they're going to be told, well, you're not the oxidative stress person, so we're not going to fund you. Um, and it leads to very um, incremental, so small thinking, 
and reductionist thinking that, um, again, it doesn't lead itself to team science that actually solves problems, which is what PLRC is doing. And it, it, it's really challenging. It's terrible because there's just like a, like there are people out there who make connections across like disciplines that, that, you know, are, are obvious to them and are meaningful directions to go into research. It's just really disappointing to be limited in that way. Yeah, I think that it just must be, I don't know, I feel like the incentive structures for so much of this field are all out of whack. Um, but yeah, it's frustrating that like, I, I think we know that so many researchers that we work with, like, probably like went into the field wanting to make a difference and wanting to, like, you don't, I, I feel like very few people, like, I actually don't know if this is true, but like, I hope this is true. Go into like a PhD or an MD being like, like not wanting to make change and not wanting to, um, you know, make a difference in the world and help people. And so it like just really sucks that because of the incentive structures, because of like how the field has developed, that that is um, disincentivized and really like looked down on kind of seen as like, actually like the way to make change is in this like very narrow way and incrementally and that's the only way. Um, yeah, it's just it's just a shame because I, I feel like the people who get into this field probably had bigger dreams. No, absolutely. I think it gets beat out of them. They're told, you know, don't be audacious, don't think big, just do the safe thing. And um, uh, one of the things that, you know, uh, I, I often get asked to sort of give innovation talks about, you know, uh, how to do science in, in different ways and different models. And one of the things that I've found, I found it necessary to do is I have a, like a privilege slide at the end. And I'm like, hey, by the way, I took a whole bunch of risks because I didn't have student debt. I'm white, I'm a dude, you know, like I, I'm, 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 you know, cisgender, I, I read and speak English. Um, these were all of my privileges that I came into, which actually allowed me to have incredible risk tolerance because when I looked at some of my colleagues who felt equally trapped and while I was saying, you know what, fuck this, I'm going to go do my thing that I think is important. They were like, well, I got $200,000 in college loans and I really need to do what my boss is telling me because I, if I get fired while I'm a mid-career postdoc, I'm done. My career's over. And, and so they make a lot of decisions based on just how much risk they can tolerate, which is almost nothing. And very quickly, these big ideas just get squished down into little ideas that are safe, but not actually necessarily useful to, to the field at large or, or to the patients who are, you know, um, uh, who, who are waiting for new breakthroughs and, and new therapies. And, you know, uh, it's, it's regrettable. I've even started to see on college intake forms for like medical school and neuropsych programs and things like that. They're starting to specifically say, please in your entry, like essays, please do not talk about your personal experience with mental health or physical health. We, you know, we don't want people leveraging 
their personal experience to get a position in our college. And I'm like, you're, you're actually trying to tell people to not bring lived experience to, you know, what they want to do. Like, are we all supposed to just be these cold objective robots that, you know, um, uh, you know, don't care about what they're doing. Um, it, it's, it's wild, you know, like I don't particularly feel that I need to have lived experience in, in, in what I'm doing. I learn from others, but I've also in the same breath, I'm not going to say don't do this because, you know, because you have lived experience. It's kind of, I don't know. I, I don't know if maybe I'm uh, naive. I don't like to think that these things are sort of conspiratorial. I think it's just, I don't know, people feeling fragile and, and grumpy and, and, you know, trying to um, just trying trying to make sure that they're protecting what they think is the important part of the tradition of what they're doing. But sometimes I'm also just like, this feels like a direct attack. And this feels as though maybe there is a conspiracy going on to, to keep people out. Although I don't know what the upside of that would be. I feel like anything that like alienates a huge port portion a huge portion of your humanity is beneficial for like capitalism and, and structures like that. Because if you don't like relate to, and you've kind of alienated it and you don't find a community based on it, et cetera, um, then that power doesn't exist in, in conjunction with the group. Like, yeah. I don't know, like that there's power, right. And identifying as chronically ill and disabled and, um, meeting other people and ha getting words for your vocabulary and, and um, you know, more understanding of what you're going through. And um, the more you know about it, the more you can do about it. And I don't know, maybe that that's also too conspiratorial, but <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Just conspiratorial enough, I think. <laughs> um, so the, the other sort of direction and question I wanted to ask uh, is is more um, about uh, we've talked about all of well we've talked about a lot of the positivity around patient-led research um, uh, do you so there, there are probably some challenges as well I would imagine um, first the first thing I want to uh, think about and talk about is you know People who are not patients who are conducting research often have inherent biases uh, that can affect their work. Do you feel also biases uh, in the work that you do? You know, so for, I mean, just off the top of my head, a symptom that you have that you kind of might just assume that everyone else is having. And so you say, hey, this is important. You know, how do you, um, how do you check your biases? How do you, like what sort of a process do you go through um, and how much of a issue is it at all that, that you find yourself struggling with? I think the second survey helped a lot with that because part of, you know, where we were living was in the Slack group where we were just seeing like anecdotes, like hundreds of anecdotes, but still anecdotes like spread across channels. And so getting kind of like rough estimates of like which symptoms were happening the most, which were happening the least, things like that, I think was helpful to start knowing what to advocate for and where to advocate. But I think we've, like, at least from my perspective, we've also, um, 
we, we've done we've been like reactive to public narratives if that makes sense so like the first one being that you know covid takes two weeks to recover from um so a lot i mean i wouldn't say it's like a bias to to say that you know it was longer than that but it was like a a, a thing that we were trying to push that it you know it does take longer to recover and that some people aren't recovering um, the second one was that it was respiratory illness where we knew it had all these neurological and cardiovascular impacts um, one thing I see a lot of is you know like providers and researchers are taught about um, some of these conditions you know we know that COVID leads to increased risk of diabetes we know it it leads to increased risk of vascular events like strokes and particularly heart attacks and cardiovascular events um, but when we are talking with researchers like a lot of those things were known like it, at the beginning of calls or in, like in proposals and stuff where conditions like MECFS and dysautonomia because they weren't taught in med schools were not known um, so I think we end up advocating a lot for those conditions where like there's the the need to do medical provider education in that way um, but I do think you know like being a good advocate requires that you're advocating for more than your your own symptom subset and a lot of the patient engagement um, you know things we do kind of require that too that you're able to speak to many different experiences of, of long COVID. Yeah I think I mean we still are doing science like we're still following the scientific method like we just identify hypotheses based off our own experience, yes, but then also what we're hearing from the community. Um, and that's even like reflective, I feel like, you know, maybe a good example is that um, like reproductive health in long COVID is super, super important to me. And that's because like one of my biggest impacts has been developing premenstrual dysphoric disorder following uh, my COVID infection. Um, and so I was like, I've been really interested in that and partnered up with, you know, other folks on um, the PLRC team to be like, let's, we need to write about this. And we like pitched it to you, David. And like, now we have the Frontiers article about this. Um, but there's no evidence really anywhere about premenstrual dysphoric disorder in long COVID or even just generally, like there's just like very little research out there. Um, and so like I did what I could with the data that's out there, which was not much. And so like, all I could do given that is say like, we need more research on this. Cause I know I'm experiencing this. I know that, you know, many people in the community are experiencing this, but we don't have data to support that. We don't have data researching that. So, you know, I think like, I feel like that's maybe a good example of like, it's not like my bias of like, this is what I'm experiencing took over that full article. Like it's mentioned once um, as like future research. Um, but you know, we're still, we're like using the scientific method. We are testing hypotheses that are of interest to ourselves and the community and presenting what we have. And that's like what any scientist is going to do. Um, and yeah, I think there is that like narrative that our biases like take over. Um, and, you know, we definitely have biases, but I think we do a good job. And that's like part of the team science thing of like checking each other's biases and, yeah. um, 
and there's all you know there's a lot of checks and balances in place for for that type of thing yeah that's what i was gonna say like even from very early on we had like checks and balances and i think like we all like we don't put something out that any like of the leads would feel uncomfortable with um and that's been true from from early on even even if it did like turn out true and yeah yeah, yeah. amazing um and so then as as we sort of <laughs> move down the the path of challenges um you know uh, uh hannah yes you are highly active on social media and you you have a lot of following and um you know i think social media is a scary and dark place um a lot of the time um honestly the way i interact with social media is probably you know like in the handbook of how not to because i just like sort of go out there and say a thing that i want to say and then just like don't take any responsibility for it and just like walk away because literally i have no time it's just like you know i can't be arguing with people at at, at all hours but i i feel that we are reaching a point in the sort of long COVID and infection associated complex chronic illness space where there are people who, you know, there are folks who are forming divisions and they're, they're, be, they're feeling as though things are objectionable. I, I'm, I'm really curious to hear about, um, I, I love a lot of the ways that you share sometimes, Hannah, about not platforming certain things um and not interacting with certain things um i'd love to hear a little bit about like what's your decision making process for things that you're like you know what i am going to platform this and i'm going to call it out versus i'm just going to let people talk some trash over here and just not pay it any mind because it's not productive i think that yeah that's a great question um i think there's like kind of two groups that have been like terrible on Twitter. Like the first, like when we put out the second paper, it was like the COVID minimizers and the long COVID minimizers where um, like basically I felt like I just couldn't, I wasn't going to like get through to those people by trying to argue with them. I think like if I think, if they have a huge following and I think that they are a good faith actor who would change their mind, like if I put in the energy to try to, give them data or like collect data and, and send it their way, then like I'll choose to do it. Um, but there are so many people on Twitter who are bad faith actors and who are just, you know, stirring up trouble. And it's hard because, you know, Twitter's designed to kind of like naturally augment that stuff. But um, it, it does feel really important to just like mute those people and move on. I think like for the more recent stuff, like where I'll step in is, you know, like when people are being attacked, like like have been recently. Um, and that's like more of just a communication of values like to the community. Like I think it's important for the community to like step up as a whole and say like, we are, we are not going to accept targeted attacks on advocates like when everyone is tired and everyone is you know one tweet away from giving up advocacy forever that is not like a risk we should be taking and like trying to like communicate to the, the community that they kind of have to step up and things like that 
Um, but I would say, yeah, most of the time, my approach is just to to not engage because of what we now know about the Twitter algorithm, which is that, you know, commenting on someone's thread is like one of the biggest things you can do to like boost their account. Um, looking at their account boosts their account. Like you, you are giving people power. Literally, you are giving people power by giving them attention. Um, and so I just I try to think of it from an algorithmic perspective and just not giving them algorithmic power. That's good. That that cools the temper as well, right? It's like <laughs> if you can think like an algorithm, that uh, that really does uh, help to put it in perspective. Um, Lisa, do you have any any pearls or any experiences? <laughs> I I really hate Twitter. I don't think that's you know it's not like a hot take or anything. Um, but I yeah, I just am like not good with it it's not how like my preferred source of communication um i like have extreme anxiety over like every single character i write so um it i think that's been a tough piece of being an advocate for this community that is like largely online um is that that's kind of like the way that we need to communicate with our community um, and I know like I can do a better job at being proactively transparent with like our work and, and what we do. And a lot of times that has felt like, like, I think this is probably wrong, but like it has taken a backseat to doing the work is being proactively transparent. Um, because it's just like, we only have so many hours in the day. We only have so much energy in the day. It feels like doing the work is more important. And I think the last few months have, you know, taught me like, okay, maybe a really important piece of this, I think is that transparency and like letting the community know so that they can like trust us, um, what we're doing, what we're fighting for. And so that they can also have input. Um, but it's just like, Twitter is just such an awful platform for that. And I wish there was something else that we were all on to discuss um, where it was like just good faith actors. Cause a lot of times it's like people assume poor intentions um, like straight away, um, even after like we've been doing this work for three years and have a lot to show that like we have the best interests of the community at heart that we are not in this for like a career or for money or, you know, like we are just like, we're trying to find answers and I would love if long COVID was no longer a thing. Like that would, yeah. that's literally the dream. Um, so anyone saying otherwise is just like completely misinformed. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's just like, it's this combination of like being transparent and like proactively transparent is hard. And I also just like am constantly scared of tweeting um, and need to develop thicker skin for like the, the you know, backlash. Um, mm. Yeah. I think also people just truly don't, like once you get to a point, people truly just don't think of you as a person, you know, like unless they, they know us personally from like body politic or a different support group, like at some point you're just like a, a target for, 
like reason like anger that is reasonable to feel at this point three years in given that there's no outlets right there's no there's no real like funding there's no real urgency around the stuff it's totally reasonable for people to feel totally. angry but it looks like we have power and like truthfully and like you know he was like have signed ndas to not be able to talk about the limited amount of power we have in some of these situations um and yeah. it's just really, really misguided. And I think people don't see like how burned out we are too and how much this work takes from us. Like like for me as someone who's like, you know, on the moderate side of things, like it's all I do. Like it's all I do. I, I don't get to like go out and have a life. Like I wake up and I work for the hours and functional and then that's it. And like, I think any of us, you know, like we, we all want this to be over. Like none of us want to, keep doing this um and i think they also don't realize that you know they risk um you know they risk they risk us by by targeting us they risk our advocacy they risk um you know the the progress we are making because we just yeah we can't be under um yeah uh, i thank thank you both for sort of expressing that because i think it's so uh, I think it's so important to hear. I, I think um, I think one of my biggest triggers is when someone sort of implies that you know I'm somehow gaining from from all of this suffering, and I'm just like, no, I'm just pathologically unable to walk past this giant burning dumpster fire and not like run in and help, um, but in no way has my life gotten better by taking on, you know, by taking on this responsibility. And then I get like triply angry for the patient population because I'm like, I, you're, you're having, you're, you're sitting there having to treat yourselves, you know, and we, we look at some of the folks like, you know, remission biome and, uh, you know, who, who are literally organizing groups of people who are, testing drugs and putting IVs in and, you know, and I'm just, I'm enraged by that because it, it's, um, it's such a failure of the systems that we have in place to look after people. Um, we're not looking after people. And so folks are organizing and then, yeah, unfortunately, if you gain a small amount of prominence as an organizer, <laughs> um, you're being told, well, you can't be trusted, you're definitely corrupt, or why did you let this thing happen? And, um, you know, it's, it's so much responsibility and it's it's not um, it's not what any of us signed up for. Um, we all want it to be over. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, all, I think all of us can say very, very honestly, none of us are financially gaining. You know, one of the things that I'm often sort of reminding people is like, if I see a thousand patients in a month, or if I see 10 patients in a month, my salary does not change. You know, there is no incentive for me to be working until eight, nine, 10, 11 o'clock. Um, but, you know, there is a responsibility, you know, that I feel to, to do it because you've got this community that, that no one's taking responsibility for. And, um, uh, it, it is, I think that's that's the point where I sort of turn away from social media when it's just like you're seeing all of this noise and, and people making these assumptions and um, 
Uh, I understand that there's a lot of folks hurting out there. Um, and, and that's, you know, I mean, even, even the people who aren't sick are hurting, you know, like, um, and they don't have a frame of reference for how awful it is to have long COVID or ME-CFS or chronic Lyme. So they're just saying, you know, you don't know how awful it is for me to feel guilty about going out. So stop making me feel guilty. You know, it's, it's, um, uh, it's a messy situation we find ourselves in and, um, I'm glad that we're all together in it. Um, Sam, I, I feel like we should take this this moment to, I mean, just like thank you for jumping into this, like you you did since the beginning. Like I think like you were the first, weren't you? Like oh, well, just, I mean, <laughs> like, who knows? Just, <laughs> I mean, just like trusting us, trusting that this was happening. Like I think like like it like literally doesn't even matter like you know the, all the all the trolls all the haters don't matter when we know that there's like people like you on our sides and um like the morale you bring to the table is just enormous and so thank you for like like putting yourself in front of those people because it really does end up helping us so much at the end of the day just to have you in this space Oh, well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you guys so much because um, uh, you've, from the very beginning, you know, uh, I, I, I agree with you having worked with many patient-led organizations across my career, across many conditions, you know, it, it what PLRC does is very different. It, it has been clear that from the outset, you're intentional about creating structure and, and and very thoughtful process around everything that you do. It's clear that you're doing things for the right reasons and not for some nefarious, like uh, trying to push research in an agenda that suits the people who are leading. It's clear that it's team science from people who like each other. Um, and it's really, you know, it's really refreshing to work with, with the whole team and, uh, you know, and hopefully get stuff done and and move the needle and and show people that science can move faster than 17 years to make a breakthrough um which is our national average if if you can believe it amazing i can believe it actually <laughs> it feels that way it definitely feels that way well i we've been going for an hour and i obviously appreciate the um the attention and the time and what 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 putting in an hour of a video call does so uh, i think we can call it here and this is a very positive note to end it on um thank you so much for chatting with me um is there anything that you want to put out there for for people any last thoughts uh, any ways to you know check out plrc and and help the cause i think we're still recruiting for the reinfection survey right yeah, yeah, we've got so, a. Go we have a reinfection survey, so any it's open to anyone, um, and that's looking at the impact of reinfections on long COVID, and if you didn't develop long COVID, and um, just looking at the impact of reinfections. So that's out there. Um, you can look at our website, which is patientledresearch.com. We also just um, published our first issue of the Patient-Generated Hypothesis Journal, um, which is a journal of hypotheses developed by the patient community, patient and caregiver community. 
Um, so, you know, we found that it's often hard to get published um, as someone, you know, who doesn't necessarily have the um, credentials or, or the background, just as you were kind of mentioning, if you're not an expert in that specific field, hard to get published. So we decided to create our own. Um, so that's out there. Um, and yeah, you can reach us at team at patientledresearch.com via email. Um, and if you dare go on Twitter, we're at patient-led. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for your time. And uh, I can't wait to uh, one day stop working on this with all of you once we've solved it. So that will be a great day. Thank you. This is Disrupting Innovation with Dr. David Petrino.